Marketing success comes from identifying the right opportunities. And sponsoring the Up Next in Commerce podcast might just be the best opportunity you'll hear about today. With tens of thousands of listeners, expert creative, production, and strategic promotion teams at the helm, not to mention millions of impressions at the ready, this is a growth opportunity you should not ignore. Email me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with the Up Next in Commerce team. Being actually faced with it and not having access to direct sales data and to actual on-site metrics because we're working through the three-tier system with retailers definitely has been a challenge. Although I do think it's really forced me to think creatively and think about how we can structure our research and our insights approach and take directional insights that we have from in-store and take them onto online and say, what is similar here? What's different? It's pushed me to go above and beyond to think about how to approach the problem of who the shopper is. What happens when you can't own the direct relationship with your customer? In the e-commerce world, you would probably think that's pretty rare, but companies in big and highly regulated industries deal with this problem every day. Anheuser-Busch is one of those companies and their team has had to be very innovative in the ways they gather insights and create relationships with their customers. I invited Arabella Waters to the show, who leads category development and insights for e-commerce at Anheuser-Busch. She's responsible for leading the charge with thinking of creative solutions to understand exactly who Anheuser-Busch's customers are, how they shop, and what they'll want in the future. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Arabella dives into the roundabout ways that Anheuser-Busch has had to gather data. And she explains how important it is to have a two-way relationship with retailers in order to share data that's useful to both parties. Plus, she explains why we can all learn a little bit from our international peers and what sorts of innovative approaches e-commerce brands can implement on their own right here in the U.S. Oh, and Arabella teases some exciting influencer content coming up. Hint, hint, it's with Travis Scott. You'll definitely want to check out this episode. Enjoy. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Before we get started, I wanted to remind you to subscribe to our weekly e-commerce newsletter at mission.org slash upnextincommerce. It's amazing. It's great. You will learn a lot of good things. Go subscribe. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. This is your host, Stephanie Postles, co-founder and CEO at Mission.org. Today, we're chatting with Arabella Waters, the head of e-commerce for Category and Insights at Anheuser-Busch. Arabella, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. I'm excited to have you on here. So is it too early for a beverage or? <laughs> yeah, I wait. It's only 1030. Otherwise, wow, I definitely wow. would be uh, having a seltzer next to me for sure. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of seltzer, I was thinking that you're the perfect person to talk about all things D2C alcohol, not just because you're working at Anheuser-Busch, but because of a company that you actually started out of college that I saw that you were taking an entrepreneurship class. And you actually took your project and ran with it. And I want to kind of start there because I thought that was really cool. And I was like, that's impressive. Almost probably no one does that that I know of, unless maybe you're at Stanford, where maybe that's a little bit more normal. So yeah, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's a 
a good segue uh, into how I got to AB for sure. So I founded uh, that company, Mocho, um, with my partner, exactly like you said, um, during college. So we were taking an entrepreneurship class, um, had this idea and just decided to run with it because it felt like a really kind of rich and uh, impactful idea that could actually go somewhere. I'd say super interesting when I think about like how it kind of came to be and came to fruition. My partner and I at the time had both been studying abroad um, during our junior years and had had, we actually were in South Africa um, and had had just like a lot more exposure to kind of the alcohol and drinking culture in like a less regulated uh, place, which sounds really interesting and funny, but in South Africa, you know, you can just, people are, you can buy wine whenever. Um, The drinking age is a little more relaxed uh, and people are getting a bottle of wine, you know, having a picnic, going for a hike, like all of that um, kind of more casual, like outdoor daytime uh, drinking behavior. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we found it very, very um, one, fun, and two, just interesting and kind of something that was missing from the alcohol market in the U.S. So I've always liked wine. I grew up in California. So it was something that like I was familiar with, but we kind of had the realization that wine in the, in the U.S. was very much so like kind of stodgy, mm-hmm. a lot of different options um, without a lot of different differentiation. Um, and in the majority of the time, it's like very heavy red wines that make you fall asleep and, uh, And yeah, hard to drink. Um, So the insight that I kind of had was that there really was this growing opportunity for more easy to drink, lighter social beverages um, that could be portable. You could take them on an adventure. Um, You could drink during the day or like during a more uh, active activity. And I'd say, so that really kind of was the thought that led to Mocho, which was um, basically like a wine spritzer. Um, based off of this drink in Spain that was wine and Coca-Cola. And, you know, I think it actually like it was such an amazing experience to have and to dig into those insights and build that brand because now that was five years ago, but we're seeing like that same trend of easily more portable, lighter, more sessionable drinks like seltzers um, or canned cocktails really growing at such a huge speed. So I do feel validated that one, that was an insight that uh, that was definitely something that was a real trend that was growing. And, and two, it really kind of exposed me to the alcohol um, biz early on. I mean, you were just ahead of your time. So yeah, you're <laughs> just like, a futurist. <laughs> I, like to, I like to think of that too. Um, it's funny though. I mean, now looking back when we were pitching it, it was kind of like a, just this counterculture idea of like, oh, you want to put wine and make it sparkling and you think people are going to drink wine outside during the day. And now, you know, people are <laughs> chugging seltzers uh, left and right during the day. So it's pretty much the same thing. So it's, yeah. it's nice to feel validated now for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sure that was a really good experience. So what ended up happening with that? Uh, the other more less fun and, and more kind of uh, realistic part of the experience was getting exposure to a like the legal landscape of alcohol in the US. Yeah. So super challenging, um, a lot of barriers to entry, whether it's, you know, getting permits, getting the ability to be registered as a wholesaler and selling to selling to retailers and all of that stuff. So I'd say that in itself was challenging. We, we got through it, but uh, the bigger challenge was just in order to 
in order to really like have the scale to get a beverage company off the ground, uh, you need to have a lot of capital. Mm -hmm. Um, And like you said, we were pretty close out of college, um, had done a couple like entrepreneurship pitch contests to get some funding and had gotten some funding through uh, like crowdfunding sites, but Mm -hmm. didn't have a huge amount of money um, at our disposal. And so I think like what kind of is full circle for me is while we had to, you know, make the hard decision to not continue pushing on with it since it was so expensive to be getting a proof of concept. Mm -hmm. Now I get to be at AB where it's such a huge scale operation um, where those things aren't a, aren't a problem. And so I I like to think I I can take some of those learnings um, and that's my job now. I mean, I was actually just going to say like you were in this kind of D2C world, if you would have been, you know, fully launching and everything. And I'm sure Anheuser-Busch saw that and they're like, that's exactly what we need. Like someone who was ready to start talking one-to-one to to a consumer, like had the idea to do that. How was it when you transitioned to Anheuser-Busch and you're, you know, working on e-commerce for category and insights? And all of a sudden you're like, oh, I actually can't talk to my consumer directly. It's like a roundabout three-tier system that I don't even know who I'm selling to really. Yeah. Um, well, you hit the nail on the head. It's definitely, uh, it's definitely adjustment. It's definitely different. I think like when I was thinking of joining the team, what I was really drawn to was exactly what you were saying, like that there were kind of was this gap in understanding of who the e-commerce alcohol shopper was. And I love insights. That's kind of like my, definitely my passion point of my job. I love the whole job, but understanding the shopper really is um, what kind of gets me up and going in the morning. And Mm -hmm. so, yes, I was like drawn to this new channel that uh, it was a new way people were shopping, that there really wasn't um, a huge amount of information available. Um, I think now being actually faced with it and not having like access to direct sales data and to, you know, actual on-site metrics because we're working through the three-tier system with retailers definitely has been um, a challenge. Although I do think it's really kind of forced me to think creatively Mm -hmm. and think about how we can structure our research and our insights approach and take directional insights that we have from in-store and take them onto online and say, what is similar here? What's different? Like it's pushed me to kind of go above and beyond to think about um, how to approach the problem of who the shopper is and And that in itself has just been like incredibly valuable. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking that too, like you really have to get creative to get data in your industry. And I thought what AB is doing around merchandise and shops and all that is really interesting. I saw a quote where someone at your company said, yeah, we essentially launched these stores and we consolidated them so that we could get shopper data because we really can't get that, you know, easily anywhere else on e-commerce. So tell me a bit about that approach. And do you think that people buying merchandise are the same ones probably buying the alcohol, you know, in store? Yeah, I'm, that's, I mean, it's super interesting to, to think of that. I, I don't know if it's the exact same shopper always, but what I do know is that anyone who's probably buying merchandise from us is definitely like a brand loyalist because yeah. you're not going to want to wear, you know, a Bud Light sweatshirt if you don't really love Bud Light and feel but- really strong. I saw brand. a crop top in your store and I'm like, that's cute. I don't know if I ever would have worn a Bush like branded t-shirt, but that crop top, it's something. I like it. Yeah. You know what? The Bud Light merch is actually really fun. I have a beanie <laughs> that I wear sometimes and yeah. I, I get endless teasing from my friends. But I love it. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely brand loyalists or to your point, people who feel each of the brands that are within AB have such strong brand voices and such legacy and such power pretty much in the market. And so I think the merchandise, while it doesn't directly relate to us selling beer, it does do, I think, some great work in furthering, you know, the brand awareness and people's feeling like they're connected to the brand and want it to be something that's part of their day to day. And I think the ability for us to, I think where we, you know, I'd love to do a little bit more work with the merch business is thinking about like how we can kind of create like a more of a one-stop shop experience. So, you know, how can we partner with retailers to get that Bud Light crop top paired with a Bud Light six pack and, you know, get it bundled together so that we can merchandise and sell that um, in one, one foul swoop, because I think that's sort of like would be the ultimate goal that we can get the shopper having the actual product and also that brand loyalty experience. Uh, But I know that that's a huge huge, huge priority because to your point, we can't capture the data. Um, but I know with the March biz that, uh, that's a, a big, um, focus for the, our, our next year in 2021. Yep. So what other creative ways are you all going about to find, you know, customer data so then you can personalize that experience in one way or another? Like what other things are you trying out that you're having success with right now? Yeah. So I think one of my favorite initiatives that we've pushed uh, over the last year has been, so COVID started, right? And it kind of was a big panicked rush of, oh my God, what's happening? What are shoppers going to do? Um, How is our category going to fare? Spoiler that e-commerce did really well last year, but I think it was a question for me. I wanted to understand if shoppers' behavior was going to be changing, what was it going to be looking like? So in lieu of being able to get all of that direct sales data, we decided to do a like quarterly pulse survey, like a behavioral pulse, asking shoppers about their last trip at a specific retailer, and then asking them specific questions about uh, what they purchased, why they were purchasing it, do they prefer click and collect or delivery, all of the kind of granular questions that really can help um, in putting together the story of who that shopper is. Those sort of insights that we're really able to uh, help us build these really close relationships with our retail partners so that we're working like in lock collaborative step and can offer shoppers solutions on the sites that fit for where their mindset is and, and how they're shopping. Yeah, that's great. So when you're thinking about controlling the customer journey and experience, especially when you're having to work through retailers, like, how do you control the experience and make sure it's working in a way that, you know, is on brand with AB? We, you know, pretty simply just work as an insights driven org to be bringing as much data that's specific to the retailers as we can. Yep. And how do you think about out of stock issues? So we just had a guest on from Intel where they're saying they're trying to work with all these retailers to, he was from the like internet of things group. And he was saying there's so much opportunity with retailers where they oftentimes like don't understand their inventory, things can remain out of stock for an entire day and they'll say that they're on it, but they actually, you know, have no idea. How do you handle that um, from like a tracking perspective to make sure that your retailers, you know, are keeping your stuff in stock and it's being tracked properly? Yeah. uh, So that's definitely has been one of my, one of my big goals for this year is to really get more, more of a data 
specific perspective on out of stocks, on how we're doing on the shelf online, everything that you're seeing. So we actually just partnered with a, uh, with a like digital shelf tracking uh, company, Profitero. I feel like you guys probably are, maybe have heard the name before. So we're, our big plan with them in the next year is basically to, to take on uh, all of, all of those things you're saying and give it more of a data lens so that we can be reporting out weekly and, and tracking what, products are out of stock and what we should be communicating to the wholesalers to be getting them, getting them updated and fixed. Cause we know that from an e-commerce perspective, out of stocks are a huge, huge issue because in store, you know, you're out of one pack of Bud Light. Well, the shelf is stocked in a way that Bud Light is a brand that has multiple SKUs. You could easily just grab the other one that's there and go on your way. Online, when something's out of stock, a lot of retailers will simply remove it from the site so you don't even see it. Um, and so that like recognition that we get with our brands is completely gone if the product doesn't even show up on the site. Um, and then you see them you know, moving to a different competitor or substituting in a different way. So I think that really it's, it's a huge, huge, huge piece. And it's especially huge with like our pure play partners to so those who are like only online retailers. Uh, because we're able to have a little bit more of a direct connection to them as well and, and work through those things. Got it. Cool. So the one thing I'm thinking about too is attribution around marketing campaigns and things like that. Like how do you think about seeing, you know, if something you're doing out in the world is actually impacting sales? If once again, you have to be like, oh, let's look at our retail partners and see what's happening. Or like, how do you think about attribution in your industry? I mean, it's definitely a, uh, it's, huh. It's a challenge. Um, I like this guy. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, uh, uh, it's a challenge. It's a constant challenge. It's something that, you know, I'm always working on to try to, again, thinking creatively and outside of the box. I think one way that we're working on thinking about like how our campaigns are performing is we track, we track like our placement on the shelf on retailers. So, you know, what percentage of the first page we have, what percentage of the first five um, spots we have. And the way that a lot of algorithms work with the retailers is that they're based on sales and conversions. So what you can do is sort of back into how a campaign or product is doing by looking at the change in where you're placed up on the site. And that's something that's like, of course, it's definitely like there's room for for error there. But I think from a directional standpoint, we're able to see like, okay, we ran a campaign on Michelob Ultra Seltzer all of January and it started at the bottom and now it's at the top. Like that means that if we were driving to that retailer, it worked, right? Um, So it's a little bit more binary in that we're not able to get like so, so granular. Um, But that's one way I think like from the category and the retailer perspective, we're able to either check or or not that Mm -hmm. uh, something is is working. Man, you're in a tough industry. I haven't had to ask questions like this almost on any of my um, episodes, but it makes me wonder. Oh, actually, except for House. When I was talking to the House founder, she was- I listened to that one. Oh, okay. Yeah. That was where I learned about the three-tier system. But it makes me wonder, like, is the three-tier system going to go away? Because it seems like there's companies right now who are kind of just working to get around that system. Yeah. And once that starts happening, it's like, well, maybe that system's just broke. And with the move to D2C, like, why- why should it still be there then if everything else can have access to the consumer? It seems like this industry should too with the proper protections. Yeah, that just feels so odd to me, especially like the world that we're in today and just thinking that you 
can make something and then not actually be able to sell it on your own just feels very archaic and that you have to go through, you know, a retail location or whatever it may be. Yeah. I don't know. It just feels not very business friendly, but that's I a think, side like, <laughs> It's super interesting also to think about like as marijuana is going to, you know, eventually I'd imagine be like legal on a federal level, mm-hmm. then how are they going to regulate that as well? Because it's sort of like a, you know, a mirror industry to us. Or is yeah. that going to be something you have to also go through wholesalers? But I think that's another probably like will give us another opportunity to have the bigger conversation because it's sort of like if THC and marijuana is able to have this direct to consumer business relationship, then like, why can't alcohol as well? Yep. Yeah. That's, it sometimes seems like older industries are punished from, you know, the older times, whereas you're new and up and coming, you move so quickly where it's like, you can get, you know, much farther ahead where then it's hard to pull you back in when you're already like, well, now I'm not delivering everywhere in California. And like, you know, no, it's so interesting. I think like, that's such a great point when you think about like the Ubers or Airbnbs or like the share economy of the world where they just basically like turned old industries on their heads and didn't really like think about the regulations. And then they're so big now that it's harder to go backwards. Yeah. Like and overturn those things. So I think good sometimes it's good to push the regulations forward and bring them up at the times. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. (laughs) So the one space that I've been, uh, a lot of guests have talked about is what's happening in China. And what was interesting was I saw that AB was looking at China and that was kind of the market that they use to bring a lot of learnings from e-commerce back to the US. So Mm -hmm. what are you guys seeing there and what kind of learnings have you actually been able to bring back to the US and apply? Versus what, what have you been like, whoa, that's just such a different market that, you know, it's very different there. And we kind of keep it siloed when it comes to what we're doing there versus in the U.S. or in Brazil or, you know, all around yeah. the world. I think I'll start off by saying that we, uh, you know, while I work on the North America business, we do have kind of like a global e-retail center of excellence where we meet frequently to talk about best practices and get inspiration, just like you're saying, from markets where, while it may not be like cookie cutter to our market, we're able to see what they're able to do and how it performs and um, think about like how we could apply it to what we do. Um, so China is definitely uh, an amazing example. I'm always thinking about uh, what they do kind of as like a the you know best case scenario for e-com. I think we have to always take it with a grain of salt just because you know, their uh, legalities to the combo we were just having, you know, they can sell directly to shoppers at any point, I believe, in the shopper journey. So that's amazing. Um, And we've really been able to, I think, like, one of the things that struck me the most, we had the China team present to us last year on Double Eleven, like the singles day, Mm -hmm. and what they've been able to do um, with our brands there, like Budweiser being one of the huge ones. And kind of just creating this huge omni-channel event where we're taking over like every single possible touch point for the shopper, whether it's like a vending machine or the apps on their phone or the actual grocery store doing like, you know, activations where there's a concert and then you can click the video and get your Budweiser delivered. Things that sort of feel to me like this, like crazy world of, digital physical connection that I think in the US like we just don't have yet for we don't have yet in general and we definitely don't have for alcohol because it's so regulated but I think that's something that we you know try to take inspiration from and think about okay 
well, while we can't, you know, have a Budweiser delivered in three minutes from uh, someone's cell phone, we can think about like how important it is to take over from a branded perspective, like multiple touch points from the shopper journey and communicate with them, not just during the shop on the retailer, but with a more interactive experience before. I know like our D2C team has really, um, has done some awesome things like International Beer Fest, which was I think in August, and then like a New Year's Eve concert festival series, those kind of things where we're getting shoppers on, they're interacting not only from like a transaction point of view, but from, you know, just feeling close to the brands, having an experience um, in a time when we need them even more so. So, uh, and those have been hugely successful. So I'd say that like China is an amazing example. I actually, I would love to go over there and work. I think like I would learn so much, Uh, but it's kind of like the like pinnacle of, you know, not having to be regulated versus we're, we're much more in in that regulated space. Yeah. Yeah. I was um, just chatting with a guest, Andrea, yesterday, where she said they brought a influencer from China to Harvard. So the Harvard students could see it in like live in action. Mm-hmm. And so they pulled her screen up so they could see what was on her phone or something. And then she was selling Harvard shirts and sold like thousands of them in like minutes. And she was like, that's when I realized like, that's crazy. And I don't know if that, you know, is the same thing that would happen here. You definitely see influencers driving sales, but I don't know if it's to that degree of like, and I have a pen and now 10,000 of them just sold because I said I had a pen. Like, I don't know if it's to that degree, but very interesting to watch. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's such a great, it's a, that's a great question. It's like, I know that influencer, they've been trying to make all the social platforms like so much more shoppable mm-hmm. this year. And I feel like, I mean, I don't have stats from Instagram, but I feel like it's not quite there yet to the point yeah. of what you're saying, where like an influencer can just be selling things and have this huge, huge power to be, Um, creating transactions. But I do, I think another interesting thing about the whole China piece with that is that so much of their tech is just integrated in whether it's like the social media is with your payment system is with the equivalent of Amazon. And so it's just like a lot more seamless. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, I mean, the power of like, we certainly have people in the US who, who can sell things. Actually, amazing example would be, you know, we're doing a, um, a seltzer with Travis Scott mm-hmm. that's launching in the next month or so, Cacti. Uh-huh. I'm nice. super, super excited for it. And I think like, that's a great example of, you know, he partnered with us to create it and he has such star power. So I think it'll be incredibly fascinating to see how that, how that does. Oh, that'd be cool to, you know, bring, bring you back and hear how that campaign went, because I think a lot of people have been debating around like, do big names, of course they will drive, you know, sales, but at what point is it authentic versus not authentic? How do you structure the campaigns to make it, you know, sometimes you'll see certain people being like, oh, I always use this teeth whitener or like, I sure love this, like whatever it is. And you're like, do you though? Like, ah, that's very inauthentic. So it'd be interesting to see, you know, how you guys create a campaign in a way that's like a partnership instead of just like a one-off, like, okay, go, you know, put this ad on your Instagram and see what happens. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a great point. I think like there's so much, so much influencer marketing that can be so disingenuous. Exactly. It's like, oh, like I love this product. Cool. That's great. You know, it doesn't have any emotional resonance with me. I think with Travis Scott, what the team did was really exactly what you're saying, partner with him. So Mm -hmm. he was so in lockstep with the creative process and the brand building and the actual liquid itself that when it came time to, you know, we announced it about a month ago, 
when that was kind of coming to fruition, he was incredibly invested in, you know, having it be successful. And it feels really authentic to actually who he is, like the whole cacti, cactus jack thing. I think like that, that definitely is part of the hopeful success of it. And yeah, I'd love to, um, you know, give you guys an update uh, when it launches in March. Um, I think it's just going to be super, like, I know the, the initial stats that we've seen, like on social media are, it's already like the top alcohol, alcohol following of any brand. It's a really an amazing testament, I think, to like how, to your point, powerful people can be and like, what is it about Travis Scott that's so resonant with so many people? You know, is it, he's incredibly creative? Is it like the whole kind of eclectic side of his brand? Is it cause he's Stormy's dad and, Probably. Uh, and Kylie's, <laughs> Kylie's, uh, you know, baby daddy, yeah, uh, yeah. but neither here nor there, uh, he's incredibly powerful. And I think it'll, it'll just be a good, whether it is a smash hit or not, it's like a good test to what you're saying about can, a person really be like the driving force behind a brand. Yeah. And I would also like to see like the lifetime value of that person is a, is it a one hit? Like I'm going to try this out. I mean, you obviously have to have a great product behind it, which just sounds like you invested heavily to make sure it was good in partnership with him. But how do you keep those people around after maybe the, you know, excitement is kind of dying down? Like how do you make that an everlasting brand and something that people actually come back to? That really is. Um, that is, exactly that's a special sauce it's like what's going to make people feel connected to it and also that it's like the liquid is is filling some need for them that they actually like and want to continue drinking because there's only I feel like with consumables what's always kind of driven me to be interested in food and bev and, and alcohol is that while there is the branding and like the specific need that it's filling it's also like there's a piece of it. It's you're eating it, you're drinking it. It has to be good versus yeah. I think with a lot of the disruption with D to C brands across kind of industries, there's a lot of like copycatting going on and like things that are not product driven and really brand driven, which is not always a bad thing, but we don't, there's not really room for us to do that because like, if it tastes bad, nobody's going to rebuy it, you know? Yeah. Yep. Love that. So how are you thinking about maybe, um, the next couple years in your industry, like you guys had to shift really quickly. I mean, I'm especially imagining how big, you know, the company is, how maybe certain processes were maybe a little outdated. Like how did you shift really quickly to focus on e-commerce and where do you want to head over these next couple of years? Yeah. Uh, so we, I think like we're in a really strong position because AB has felt like e-commerce has been something that's important for you know, I believe the team started five or so years ago. So really we've been um, building the foundation for this channel for a while. Um, But totally to your point, it has been, this year has completely transformed the way that we we do business Um, just because the sheer volume of interest from players wanting to get online, the amount of people who are entering into the category online. So, you know, it's like, it's doubled the amount of households in the U S of people who are buying alcohol online and like just the sheer simplicity of that and the size of the way that the industry has grown or that our category and the channel has grown um, has definitely been, been a big change. So I think we were set up for, for success going into it. And it kind of was more of a like accelerating and scaling everything that we were doing. So making sure we were supporting more regional partners um, versus just, you know, the Walmarts and the Amazons and the Instacarts of the world. 
um, thinking about how to optimize like what we were doing in a really fast way. So just like what we were talking about before, trying to track campaigns and get like a green light or a red light on whether it is actually doing well. I think one thing that we worked on during COVID that was a big pivot and I'm very proud of is we created a site called Buy Beer Online. And it is designed basically like during COVID, um, you know, huge boom, but not everyone knew exactly where to go to find their alcohol online. We found that a lot of people were searching and Google like beer delivery, like how do I get beer delivered, like buying beer online. Um, And so we created this site that is designed to be like bridging that gap. And so it has all of our brands on it. And it also links to an e-commerce product locator. Mm -hmm. So you come on, you can find craft brand that you like, click it, and it'll tell you where you can order it for delivery or pickup That's near you. Smart. So you're like optimizing on a new search trend, which I know myself personally has been like, how to get wine mm-hmm. delivered and being like, oh, like, where do I even start? And I have to download this app or this one. And this one's going to take like, eight, you know, four hours. That's too long for me. Yeah. Uh, that's oh, really totally. smart. Um, exactly. We actually should have it where it's like 30 minutes or less. Yeah. Yeah. Important. Because um, sometimes yeah. you need it right when you need it, you know? <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. Like I just actually saw a piece of research where it was like a quarter of people are like immediately consuming right after, which makes sense, you know? Sometimes yeah. exactly you need it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that was, I'd say like something that we created like within a couple months during the beginning of COVID to make sure that we had a tool like that to be helping shoppers. And I'd say it's been really strong for search, for paid search, like we're saying. And then also for a lot of our craft brands that really relied on uh, regionality and that like on-premise bar experience, brewery experience. During COVID, it was sort of a big, yeah, a big issue where shoppers didn't know where to get the craft brands that they love. So we were able to, in a way, make our craft website. So like a Goose Island or um, a Carbach, you live in Austin, yeah. uh, make those sites shoppable by linking out to buy beer online so that you could get the shopper to an actual place where they could find the beer. So that's been really impactful and, um, and very, very cool for us to, to be doing during COVID. And I think like the more we can do things like that, where we're owning the full experience, because to your point, we also capture all the, uh, the data that comes through too. So it's yeah. like a win-win. I mean, yeah, I just love those stories because it just really does highlight the creativity and like innovative thinking at AB that maybe you wouldn't have done if you would have had it easier. Like if you would have had that easy, you know, one-to-one consumer relationship, you wouldn't have had to think about, okay, what are other creative, you know, search terms we can go after and content we can create and ways to reach our consumer that a lot of brands don't really have to think like that. So yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. And I think it's like, it is really cool. And I think that's one reason I love AB is it's very creative and innovative place, which I don't know if like everyone knows that, but it really is. And And I feel like if I was direct to consumer, there's also, you can really kind of get caught up in um, like the tactical pieces Mm -hmm. of things. So to your point, it's like, I would just be obsessed with the open rates on my marketing emails and like how I'm converting people, which those things are amazing and important. But I think we're, you know, forced to, like you said, think outside the box and, and figure out more about our shopper in a way that's kind of a little bit unorthodox. Yeah. That's cool. So the last piece I want to touch on before our lightning round is like, how does AB think about their tech stack for, you know, cause it's like B2B to C, how did you guys have to adjust if at all to all of a sudden 
be able to let all these retailers, you know, maybe order online in a fashion that was not happening before, like pre-COVID? Like, did you have to adjust your back end to make it simple for people to come on and order and make that, you know, an easy relationship? Or what did that look like? Yeah. So luckily, because we, you know, have the three-tier system, we're not actively like funneling any sales through our own tech side or back end. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, you know, actually what we try to do though is as a lot of retailers have come on in the last year or so, is like leveraging our knowledge and our partnerships to offer them like the best connections. So, you know, whether it's connecting a grocery store with the best on-demand delivery app, a Grubhub or a Drizzly or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and creating those relationships so that they can get on board, I think is really like what we look to do. I know that that's not a techie answer, but it's definitely um, what we try to try to optimize. And then also helping them with like the payment platforms, mm-hmm. helping them on board with a Stripe or an Apple Pay, or just at least giving them the tools and the information. It's something that they have to do on their side as the retailers, but we like to try to um, try to optimize and help them get to the, the strongest place to launch as possible. Yeah, very cool. All right, let's move over to the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by our friends at Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I'm gonna ask you a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. What one, yeah, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> what one thing will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year? You know what I actually feel really um, feel very strongly about is like the presence basically of like the fact that retailers and D2C companies um, are moving towards creating not just like the shopping experience on their sites, but more of like a content hub. And what I mean by content hub, not just to say buzzwords is, you know, a place where not only are shoppers coming to buy your products, but maybe they're looking at recipes, maybe they're doing mixology. Like if it's retail, you know, like maybe you're giving them styling options or more info about your products. Really like I've seen more and more companies do this this year as I think it's like a twofold thing. It's become like the status quo as people know that like shoppers love content as social media has been just so big in the last few years. And then secondly, as people are more and more at home more on their phones than ever before. And that's not a COVID answer. It's just like true that if you can capture someone's attention to actually get them engaged and interacting and making everything on your site shoppable, that can really change your experience or not. Um, And I know that for us, for e-commerce with alcohol, that's especially huge because it's, we're not quite there yet. And I really want to get there. Yeah. I love that. All right. Next question. What was your favorite virtual event that you did at AB in 2020? And how do you think about success for these virtual events that you're saying like performed really well? What a good question. So yeah, I think that the International Beer Fest that we did in August. So I wasn't, uh, I wasn't, you know, leading that, but our general direct to consumer team was. And I think that was incredibly successful because it came at a time when people were a like really starved for that interaction and the feeling of connecting with people and doing something and having something to look forward to. Um, and B it worked in a really strong way where it connected with our brands. So international beer fest had, there was music happening, like a few, uh, artists who were sponsored by our brands. I think post Malone, like did a thing, um, saying, and 
So there was that element where it's a little more passive, like it's encouraging you to, you know, crack open a beer Mm -hmm. and watch the concert super strong. But then also just like other things, like I think I believe we had like a cooking tutorial and like a mixology thing and like trying to create um, something that is for everyone without stretching yourself too thin and also like being true to the brands super key. And I know what was also a great add to it was we were able to leverage Buy Beer Online to also direct to during the event so that people could find places to to shop for. That's cool. What did the traffic look like going to the Buy Beer Online, like during that event or afterwards? Like what kind of conversions did you see going to that? Yeah. So I believe um, we actually saw a lot more conversion, like coming up to the event versus actually during it, which mm-hmm. is interesting for sure. I think like we're in much more of a place where shoppers are still shopping for a little bit in advance, like planning ahead, like, oh, yeah. I saw this ad for this thing. I'm going to buy beer for, you know, this weekend to watch it mm-hmm. um, versus looking and saying, I'm going to get Drizzly in 20 minutes to get delivered. Um, so we saw a lot of traffic like leading up to it, definitely. And then a lot of like live interaction during it, but not as much, I think like quick conversion onto those on-demand platforms, which I think just speaks to the fact that click and collect and pick up is just a little bit stronger right now than the delivery aspect. But I think we'll probably see that grow as Uber, you know, just bought Drizzly literally yesterday. So that's going to be a big, big game changer for scale. Yeah. Everyone's trying to figure out, you know, last mile delivery and how to make it work. And yeah, there's been quite a few interesting articles about why some of those companies like the DoorDash just need to expand and um, yeah, very cool. What's up next on your Netflix queue? Oh, what a good question. Um, <laughs> I am currently making my way through Grey's Anatomy. Uh, I've been watching it for so long since it started. So uh, it's kind of like my comfort watch. And yeah. after a long day uh, with a little Zoom fatigue and talking on the phone all day, it's nice to just relax with something that I, <laughs> yeah. I know is reliably dramatic and juicy. <laughs> That's great. If you were to have a podcast, what would it be about? And who would your first guest be? Good question. Um, I think, you know what? I really, I'm kind of like a fitness buff a little mm-hmm. bit. And nice. I've gotten really into it during COVID. Just as like a distraction and the thing to keep me sane. Yeah. I love Pilates a whole lot. Um, I find it, you know, very, very uh, focuses my brain. It's challenging. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have to jump around. I don't love hit. That's not my fave. So yeah. I would love to do a podcast that kind of explores like the relationship between human psychology and exercise and like how those things are so entwined because I really believe they are. Um, And I think as, you know, my first guest, I'd love to bring on someone. I actually just read a great book about like endurance running and like ultra marathons where they run, you know, 200 miles, which is wild. I don't run. Two miles sounds like a... (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm like one mile. Um, I find it so, so fascinating how you really can like push yourself. So I'd I'd say I'd like to, I don't know a specific name, but I'd like to bring on someone who's an endurance athlete to kind of pick their brain. Yeah. Very cool. All right, Arabella, it's been awesome having you on the show. Such a fun conversation. Where can people find out more about you and Anheuser-Busch? Yeah, definitely. So you can check out my LinkedIn. I'd say if you want to find more info um, about me, Um, And if you're curious, please check out Buy Beer Online. We have a lot of info about the biz and all of our brands um, on there as well. And you can feel free to, if you'd like to reach out to me, uh, I don't know, we can maybe put my email address somewhere. I'm happy to 
Yeah, I know that's uh, that's saying it's being risky, but I'm always happy yeah. to chat with people and connect. Um, I think that's really kind of like what is the bones of business and, and makes the world uh, stronger. So, and yeah, shoot me an email. Amazing. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. Of course. Thank you. everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, you'll probably also love our e-commerce newsletter. To get it delivered straight to your inbox every week, sign up at mission.org slash upnextincommerce. Upnextincommerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.